Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Gross debt, when we look at a company's balance sheet, just the sheer amount of debt that is on uh, their liability side of the equation has been growing. Uh, it's actually picked up following the pandemic. You would in many cases anticipate that debt might fall uh, when markets are in that much turmoil, but the recovery to both the economy and the market has been very quick. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. So maybe corporate debt levels are increasing despite higher interest rates, so the cost of borrowing has gone up. Couldn't that be the chain holding back a company? Sure, I mean, if they use that money to grow, that's better than not borrowing at all. But if the cost of borrowing was lower, then surely they have more funds to do more with. So at times like this, when interest rates are so high, doesn't it just reinforce slow growth? And is there a way to try and encourage more investment and more growth so we produce more and fix the supply issue, which is keeping inflation? high. In other words, does corporate debt kill opportunity? That's this week on the Debunking Economics Podcast. So if you've got a, a good idea for a business, what's stopping you making money from it? Well, probably the answer is that the money that you need to actually get it going. For that, you need a loan or an investor, either a bank that uh, you have to pay back or an investor who wants a share in a company, whether it's debt financing or equity financing. That's the question, isn't it? Take your pick. You'd assume... If you can find someone who wants to play ball, uh, then a loan is the best because you're not giving away any of your company. But what's in favour really depends on how the economy is doing. So there was a Deloitte survey in October last year that found that CFOs in bigger companies right now prefer equity financing to debt financing, either from uh, debt financing, either being bank loans or issuing bonds. Why? Well, obviously, uh, with inflation high and bond yields rising, debt is more expensive now. So that is part of the problem, isn't it, Steve? When the economy struggles, borrowing money becomes more expensive. So you have the risk of less demand and higher borrowing costs, why would you want to set up or expand a business in an environment like that? And that is a, that's a real problem because how do you get out of a, a downturn economy if no one wants to invest? Yeah, and this is uh, one of the main problems with bank lending is that it's, you know, it's an expensive form of finance, which the advantage of it is that it's a, a fixed percentage floating percentage sometimes of the amount of uh, money you've, you've, you've raised, uh, you don't give any ownership of the firm away. So that's one reason that existing companies prefer to have debt over equity because if they're going to raise money by equity, then they've got to give away part of the ownership of the firm. So in, in general, there's a bias uh, in favour of debt finance over equity finance for existing companies. But the danger is, of course, that you know there are various times in history and, and the most recent period of rate rises by the Federal Reserve is one of them, uh, that there's an unexpected increase in the cost of that money and suddenly what was a, originally a cheap form of finance becomes a very expensive one and then you'll start looking at the equity option. Which is what's happening now with bigger companies. Mm. Whichever way you look at it, and let's look at it from a, you know, a start-up business, a slice of business 
that you create, unless you've saved up for years and don't need any extra money, a slice of your business, either whether it's through a loan or whether it's through equity, is basically you're going to be paying the finance sector. And the higher the risk of your business, the more the finance sector gets, which, I mean, that's just the way it is. But it's not an ideal situation, is it? Not by a long shot. I mean, uh, you know, I'm, I'm one of the world's experts on how money is created and what money is created for. And if you look back through history, uh, one of the most eloquent writers on what banks should do when they create money is Joseph Schumpeter. And if people haven't read it, then I highly recommend taking a look at his book, The Theory of Economic Development. Do not bother with his most popular book called Capitalism, Socialism and Democracy. That was his pension plan. It's, it's a load of boring twat, twaddle uh, that I read when I was a student and couldn't work out why anybody thought you should take Schumpeter seriously. Theory of Economic Development is a much, much richer text. And what he talks about there is the role of banks in creating money for entrepreneurs. So what he says the function of banks is to give money to entrepreneurs who he effectively defines as people with a good idea and no money. And then it says, well, the banking sector creates money for them, and that is an actual creation of money. It's not a transfer of existing money from one person to another, which is the mainstream economic myth of what banks actually do. Schumpeter fully understood that banks create money when they lend. But he said what they do is by creating money and giving it to an entrepreneur, they enable the entrepreneur to turn that good idea into actual products. The trouble is... Uh, first of all, banks, generally speaking, aren't going to fund entrepreneurs, startups, because if you're giving somebody debt financing, uh, then you only get, you know, let's say if you even put an interest rate like 10% on the debt, you're getting 10% of the money you've lent them to them. What happens if they fail? Now, if they if they fail, you lose your you lose your your money as a bank, but if they succeed dramatically, you're still just getting ten percent of what you offered them. When they could go from being, you know, work worth what Microsoft was in a garage with Bill Gates and a few of his his dorky looking friends, to when it becomes the world's largest corporation, and the, you don't the bank itself doesn't benefit from that increase in the valuation of the company, whereas somebody taking an equity position does. So we have quite a, a distorted system for finance, which really only suits uh, companies that already exist and need working capital. It doesn't suit entre- it doesn't suit startups at all. So, yeah, because, and by the way, Bill Gates, even though he's got, you know, billions now, still managing to look dorky. Uh, so that's amazing he's managed to pull that off throughout his entire life, irrespective of Well, his- I mean, he, he, he doesn't have the same plastic surgeons that Elon Musk has used, obviously. <laughs> He's got a plastic surgery. Has Elon Musk oh, gone down the I plastic surgery? Has he? Was, oh God, yeah. He was going. He was going bald in his twenties. I mean, if you find yeah. photographs of him when he was back in the PayPal days, it was a receding hairline that looked like he was making way for a new runway at Heathrow. And, <laughs> uh, and now he's got a full head of hair. Oh, well, that's a hair he's transplant. Up and yeah, yeah. So a hair transplant, definitely. But there's also been. A, I think there's been a jaw transplant and a nose transplant as well. Right. Bill hasn't done any of that, and he still looks like he's the sort of person who should should be doing your accounting for you, not the person. Well, yeah, it's wondering whether uh, he's having plastic surgery to keep that dorky. So I'm not not looking as dorky. Please give me some more dorky features. Maybe that's it. You know, I'm I'm going to tell the tale out of school here because I, you know, I've worked in the software industry for quite some time. And one of my best mates at the time I was in the industry, I've lost touch with him now, uh, was looking forward to meeting Bill Gates at a party. (laughs) 
and uh, and because there's a social thing with his software company. And then he meets Gates and he's chatting up and Gates is in the kitchen with this mate of mine and Gates is chatting up a young woman, forgotten, didn't know any who she was these days. And then Gates finishes the chat and turns to my mate and says, God, I love flirting and walks out of the room. That was the intellectual contribution he got from meeting Bill Gates. <laughs> right, fantastic. Uh, so let's get back to the discussion. Uh, oh, okay, uh, well, you yeah. just want to talk about Bill Gates flirting? I mean, two words have never no, put a sentence no, together. The whole thought of him flirting it's- is looking like a like a door because <laughs> it's, it's, it's an it doesn't it isn't Hollywood. Put it well, that it way. Well, it gives us all hope, though. Perhaps uh, should we ever be engaged in that, which I don't think I hopefully won't be for the rest of my life. But look, the um, well, nothing wrong with flirting, I guess. Uh, uh, but mm. let's get back to this. So, um, okay. it, I mean, the issue is, isn't it, that you've basically banks or anyone lending wants an asset sitting behind it. There's got yeah. to be something. Yep, absolutely. And, and, and if you haven't got one, you haven't got one. So how do we get over that problem? Well, this is what, what actually has happened. And this, I mean, I remember meeting Michael Pascoe, who was a fairly popular finance journalist back in Australia. And he was complaining about falling house prices, was saying, well, the way that people make their money that become entrepreneurs these days is they make money on house speculation and then use the house speculation to set up a business. So to use another Australian example, and this is a much far less dorkier person and actually a very decent human being, uh, John Hewson, whom I met and, and knew through quite a few interviews in, in Sydney, a, a damn decent man, and I'm extremely sorry that he didn't become prime minister rather than that jerk. John Howard, but Houston uh, made his money initially all over a birthday cake. Over a birthday cake, I know. Houston made his money in restaurants, but he made the money to establish the restaurant uh, by by selling a house for a profit on a rising market. So fundamentally, what has happened now is that if you're going to want to start a business, the best way is to borrow money from a bank to buy to, to buy a house. Watch the house increase in value because hey presto, the banks are lending too much money for house finance, sell for the capital gain, and then invest your capital gain in a business. It's a totally convoluted to go way to go about what should be a much more fluid process of of a funding organization, whether that's a bank or a venture capitalist, uh, or whatever they are from the finance sector, assessing what you're talking about, saying, hey, this is revolutionary, or this is a damn good restaurant, and then providing finance for you and benefiting out of the, the act of, of you turning that concept into something which is successful and grows the equity value over time. So in that sense, uh, the only form of banking that looks a bit like that, and it's not enough like that, is the Islamic system of finance, where uh, because they effectively ban interest, what they're not, what they're banning is not uh, the, the uh, funder getting a gain. That's why people think comes out of the banning of interest. They're saying the funder has to take a risk of the on the capital value of the business that's being established. So I think it's called halal finance. I'm not sure. I'm sure some friends will correct me. But halal finance basically says a bank lends an equity position. It doesn't lend a debt position. And therefore, the, the upside for a, for a bank lending that way is that if, if you are the next Microsoft and they lend you a million dollars to, to take, establish the business for, you know, for a, a 25% share in the equity, then that 25% share of a million becomes 25% of 10, 
$10 trillion, and you, you've done extremely well, but you also lose money on the other ones that don't succeed. Right, but that's not, I mean, that's not the ideal situation, though, is it, for a lot of people, giving away so much equity in a business. If it's if it's a clear winner, uh, you, you don't want to do that. I mean, because so, all that's doing is saying, well, okay, they don't allow debt finance, they allow equity finance. That's 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 what's permissible under Islamic law. Well, it's, it's, it's a, you know, I, I'm, I'm literally in that situation right now. I mean, this is going to... Hopefully, in about three to six months' time, I'll be releasing a software package called Ravel, uh, which I've developed with my great friend and brilliant programmer, Russell Standish, built on top of the Minsky software. And we have done that ourselves in our spare time, financing it ourselves out of, you know, superannuation savings and things of that nature and putting in our time to get it developed. It's taken over a decade. Now, what it would have been the ideal situation would be to be able to approach a fan finance and saying, look at what this idea idea can do. Uh, give us the money to enable us to get it done in two or three years, and then we're happy to give you a 25% share, for example. But that what, what happens with venture capital, which is the other side of, of debt finance, is that they basically take an arm and a leg out of you. 25% would be a bargain. Uh, and quite frequently, I've, I've had so many horror stories of what happened to entrepreneurial companies when they went the venture capitalist route that we've avoided that as well. So you've got the worst of both worlds. You've got a, an equity share, which ends up uh, cauterizing you and you know amputating your gain, and often you end up with nothing or even less, or debt finance, which won't even approach you in the first place because quite sensibly, a bank says, if we take a punt on you and the area you're talking about succeeds, but you individually don't, we lose all our money. So you, the entrepreneurship falls through the well, cracks. Well, isn't that happening? Because there will be a world of good ideas out there, uh, which all could potentially mm. add to the to the growth of the economy. And of course, you know, here's the rub: uh, you know, speed up our transition, our climate transition, our you know, at least our mitigating action against climate change. So all of these things that that are that are needed and need investment. The speed at which they happen, even though the good ideas might exist, the speed at which they happen is largely determined by the stance being taken by the finance sector. There's no way around that, is there? No, there isn't, unless we actually redesign finance. To a, a, one thing I propose, which will never happen, of course, because it's a good idea, uh, is to enable banks to offer either equity or loan positions when they take on a company. Now, the danger, then, the reason one reason that's not allowed is, of course, what happened in the 1920s when uh, Banks were not differentiated into uh, commercial banks and retail banks, but they were you know, one group together, and banks were able to buy shares on the stock market. Now, when you look at what happened in the 1920s, it's quite horrific. This is, this is data that I'm publishing in my next book, which is called Rebuilding Economics from the Top Down, and that's what I've written while I've been here in Budapest with the Budapest Center for Long-Term Sustainability. And I looked at the level of margin debt. Uh, over the last 100 years. And, uh, you know, it, it takes a lot to shock me in economic data, but I almost fell off my chair when I first plotted this margin debt, which, of course, is brokers lending you money so that you can gamble on the on the increased value of, of shares, rose from one, I think it was one half of percent of GDP in 1920 to eight and a half percent in 20, 1929. And is it right. any wonder the stock market exploded? So what you had was so that- like a, like a 16-fold increase. 16-fold increase over 10 years. That's what caused the bubble in the stock market. That's what made everybody look wealthy in the 1920s, and it caused the Great Depression. So, so this, you- is banks, this is banks investing 
what in, in the customers' money or their reserves or what, 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 a bit what, of both? What, 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 what margin loans is you? You go to a bank with save safe of ten ten thousand. Let's go back to the nineteen twenties, and you're a wealthy, fairly wealthy person with ten thousand dollars spare. You go to a broker, and the broker says, "Well, oh, don't just put your whole my money in there. Take out a margin loan, and you, with that ten thousand as a deposit, you can get a hundred thousand dollars. We'll lend you ninety thousand at a, a very, very generous rate of interest. Uh, and then if the stock market doubles." It goes up by ten percent. You double your money, uh, if, and they say, "Oh, what what happens if it uh, if it goes down ten percent? Oh, that'll never happen." Well, it did in one right. day. And that money that they're giving that 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 leverage that leverage is all money that's been created by the bank, of course. Again, and that's what causes the bubbles. So what we what we end up with the bank the banking sector, which finds it easier to finance asset speculation than it does entrepreneurship. So back in the nineteen twenties, it was margin loans, and also, banks taking their own positions in the stock market as well, uh, which was you know, you had a double whammy there, causing inflated asset prices, and it all came crashing down in October 1929. Um, what we have now is they've done the same thing with mortgage debt. So it's very, very difficult for a bank to decide whether a particular entrepreneur's idea is going to work. But it's very easy to see that there's a house on a block of land over there in an area where house prices are rising, and you finance person buying it. At a higher price than the than the original buyer now seller paid for it, and you get another asset price bubble. So we have a finance sector that, on the one hand, promotes asset bubbles, and on the other hand, doesn't provide finance for entrepreneurs. No, but that is that is a world away from a bank saying, "Well, okay, let's give you a loan for you to invest in in a business," rather than yeah. saying, "Well, okay, let's give you a loan so that you can uh, uh, so you can buy uh, listed assets." This is you know for somebody else's business. I mean, that they're, they're two worlds apart. So what's stopping banks? saying, well, we are going, apart from the fact that they don't want to take the risk, perhaps because they don't need to, what's stopping banks saying, well, we're going to invest more in businesses, more in startups, helping these entrepreneurs? What's stopping them doing that? Well, the main thing is because they have to maintain positive equity. And this this is, again, one reason you've got to look at the structure of finance and say, what are the strengths and weaknesses of the system as it stands? And how can we accentuate the strengths? And with, with a, a, an absolutely vital condition for a bank is that its financial assets, short-term financial assets, must exceed its short-term financial liabilities. Now, its main financial liabilities are deposits. Okay? Its main financial assets are loans and also reserves. And if you have a, a bank lending uh, to actual entrepreneurs, then it's quite possible that let's, let's you know, a rough rule of thumb, out of five, five entrepreneurs, four are going to fail. So if you lend a, a million dollars to each um, and with one of them, Making a fortune and therefore paying their ten percent of a million dollars each year, hundred thousand revenue coming in, yada yada yada. But the other four go bankrupt. That part of your equity is wiped out. So when 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 people can't repay their loans, so when entrepreneurs fail and they can't repay the money they've borrowed, then the bank has to take that hit on its equity. And if it does that, it goes bankrupt, and then that's the end of the bank. And that, of course, causes crises not just for the bank, but also for the finance, for the monetary system, the, you know, the expenditure system. You and I absolutely rely right, on. Which raises the question: Is there more of a role for the government, or does the government need to be more involved in the running of banks? We'll look at both of those questions when we uh, when we come back on the debunking economics podcast. Back in a second. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. 
At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. businesses are financed and how you know when you do finance a business it's through the finance sector they end up you either end up owing them a lot of money or they end up uh, owning a lot of your company uh, and the big problem is of course a lot of great ideas are stopped are stymied by the fact that there just isn't that funding available coming from banks and uh, as steve we talked about just before the break, break the banks don't want to take risks uh, because they don't want to run into a situation where they've got negative equity, where they go bankrupt, in other, in, in other words. But what happens in China? Because there, I don't know if you know too much about the way they're funding a lot of loans there, but a lot of uh, uh, of the uh, operization, is that the word? Oh, That's a difficult word to get, isn't it? Uh, anyway. Well, well, try, try it again. What's the tongue twister? Again. Opera, I can't even say it. Anyway, a lot of the operation, day-to-day operation of giving loans is managed through uh, local banks, isn't it? Because they, you know, like mm. almost like community banks, because they're close to the businesses. But mm. they take risks, and then the government somehow steps in. Is that because the government is trying to stop those banks going bankrupt to try and alleviate that problem that we talked about? A large part of it is. Now, this is, this is one of Richard Werner's specialisations, the role of local banks in enabling entrepreneurial investment to take place. So if you if you have a bank which you know, where the bank manager lives in the local community, knows the uh, potential applicants for loans for new ventures, then they will be aware of who is and who is who is and who is not a, a credit risk, who looks like they've got a great idea, who could be a good manager who's got a good track record, if it's a serial entrepreneur, that sort of thing. So they're more likely to fund um, small ventures, which can turn into big ones over time. So my favorite example there was, I think I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but I was invited to a conference in Bonn in Germany. And then my and the person who invited me said, oh, don't stay at the hotel. Stay with me and my wife in, in our house. Uh, you know, and I said, okay, I agreed to that. Well, 130 kilometers later, we got to their house in a tiny little village, 5,000 people in Germany. And it happened to be the July the 4th, which was the night of an annual concert held around the local extinct volcano caldera. S- superb experience uh, with, a, with an orchestra, 
uh, sopranos, altos, magnificent experience. Anyway, the whole town was there, the whole 5,000 people to enjoy this once a year concert. And there's an old couple sitting on a park bench and my host walked past and chatted to them, introduced me and so on and walked away and he said, oh, those, they're the, the owners of the biggest company in the village. And I said, oh, what do they produce? My expectation being he's going to say, you know, Krautwurst, Liverwurst, blah, blah, blah. He said satellites. Now, this two the old couple, the two top-class engineers, the local bank manager knew they were brilliant uh, and financed them building a factory in that town that makes satellites, a village of 5,000 people. So that's an example of the sort of thing which can happen when the bank is run by somebody who knows the local community. Instead, what happens these days, it all goes off to some bloody head office and they credit score you. If you don't have the assets, you don't get the loan. Yeah, exactly. But what happens in the situation, if you even if you did go down that road, what happened if that satellite business failed uh, and the the bank was putting itself at risk is there a way that a system could be developed that starts to I mean I hate the idea of taking risk out of banks because we know how they misbehave when risk is taken off the table but is there a way that you know that risk could be alleviated in in some way to try and encourage more giving of these of these loans well that's that's where the government role comes in again because uh, essentially uh, you know banks don't exist unless they're chartered by a government. You you become a bank, you get a bank license. And to get a bank license, you've got to show you've got a positive equity. So you start off by raising capital for that purpose. Uh, you then have a set of money to, to put forward. You get all the due diligence done on you and so on. But that gives you a capacity to create money. And that comes from the state giving you that license. Now, one thing which could be done is be this, the state again to say, okay, we're going to give you this license where usual sort of loans are going to exist, but we'll give you a right to also um, you know, give entrepreneurial loans, which can be in like an equity position rather than a, a, a debt position, a debt lien against the people you lend to. Uh, and, and we're going to cover the possibility that those are going to fail. Now, a large part of what China does, and again, this is by reading some recent work by Richard Werner on this front, he argues that what the China did was realize that situation in both Germany and Japan through all the small banks. And what it's doing is encouraging the banks to lend to local engineers that they expect to come up with brilliant ideas. And clearly, China's had a lot of those in the last 30 years. And if they fail, then the government covers them through the government's capacity to create money. Because, and this is one, you know, one reason why modern monetary theory is so important, we know the government can create money simply by spending more than it gets back in taxation. It can equally create money to cover losses by the commercial banks when they make entrepreneurial loans that fail. You have to have some limits and controls there, and you have to make sure there's not corruption going on as well between a government official and a, a local bank, which obviously does occur. But that's what has to happen. Right. But you can only create money so long as you are growing the economy, of course. Otherwise, you are. I mean, you are going to start to see inflation. But you are creating money in this in in this instance because you are hopefully growing the economy. You might have a few bad eggs, a few misfires. But you would generally be making that money available to fund the development of new businesses, which are going to be productive. Yeah, and like this, this again is something Sean Pater argues brilliantly in the theory of economic development. That when you he 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 does what economists should have done, and obviously they haven't, which is to make a set of assumptions that makes it harder for him to make his case. So he argued that for the role of the importance of entrepreneurship and innovation and enabling capitalism to transform itself over time, and he assumed initially that. 
that the economy was fully employed. Therefore, there weren't free resources you could uh, hire uh, by, by raising money to hire workers and buy machinery and so on. You have to bid stuff away from existing firms. That made it harder to make his overall case. He also assumed that entrepreneurs didn't have money, whereas, of course, some entrepreneurs, like, let's say, uh, Elon Musk, had money and therefore could start some of their investment on their own. They didn't need to borrow from a bank. So he made all these things more difficult for himself in terms of reasoning how the whole thing happened. What he then explained was how that would cause cycles in economic activity. So if you have one entrepreneur in a particular area, let's say rockets, uh, getting finance, then that means that the success of that particular funding operation leads to more people coming forward with ideas about rockets. You get more companies being made who produce rockets. That gives you a, a boom in money uh, production in the first instance. They go out and eat sushi every afternoon. So you've now got mm, the sushi the restaurants and everybody Just else the in the yeah, local yeah. community benefiting as well. Yeah, you got to get a burn. And then, of course, when the products come on sale, what they do is start undercutting other businesses. So once you have uh, satellites being able to take the place, for example, of laying optical fiber, then the optical fiber business suddenly starts losing money. So when the technology comes on stream, it actually causes a, a, a downturn in economic activity because it's undercutting the existing businesses that this entrepreneurial innovation is targeted at. Right. So, are you saying that's a good thing or a bad thing? Well, they say it's it's natural. It's it's a, it's it's a natural part of the dynamics of a private credit system. Yeah, and it's you'd it, say if you only had private credit, you have those booms and busts. And what the government could do uh, is enable the downturn, the bust, to be less severe than it was otherwise. What Schumpeter left out of his thinking was the accumulation of debt over time, whereas. Hyman Minsky, his PhD student, was the one who focused on that and said, if you have these booms and busts, they can lead to an accumulation of private debt that ultimately causes a Great Depression, which is what happened. So we have to think intelligently about finance, and that's the last thing I'd accuse mainstream economics of doing. So isn't part of the problem is that you know we, we are limited by the vagaries of central banks and interest rates? And why does it have to be that way when we're looking at investments for for new enterprises? Okay, central banks put interest rates up because they feel like the economy is running too hot. They're trying to quell consumption by and large, but they don't want to stop growth because if we've got growth, then we can cope with more consumption. We want the economy to grow, you know, ignoring the, uh, the effects of climate change. So is I mean, is there a way? Should we be saying, well, okay, interest rates should be different depending on the purpose of the loan. If you are establishing a new business, well, we'll always charge two percent or whatever, just set a, a standard rate away from the way the you know the economy is behaving at that time. Yeah, and that's quite feasible because again, one of the reasons that people think that private interest rates have to be higher than the um, uh, reserve interest rate is they think that our oh, banks are borrowing at this amount and they've got to lend at a higher level. They've got to have a margin above their cost of money for them. But in fact, <clears throat> the reserve interest rates Settlement account rates, they're not money the banks don't lend. This is the whole myth that banks lend out reserves. They do not do that. Um, so it'd be quite possible to have a different rate on reserves than you have on commercial loans and still be profitable as a bank. I think in many ways banks use the reserve rates as a cover for putting up the rates they charge uh, the rest of us in the economy. So rates tend to follow 
the level of economic growth and the rate of uh, and the and the and the rate set by the central bank when they don't have to do that. Mm. It's, it's a bit of a con job. Yeah, well, strangely, they do seem to make bigger profits, don't they, when interest rates are higher? Why would that be? I wonder. <laughs> so, all right. So, the UK government does own the Infrastructure Bank. They set that up in 2021. They say providing $22 billion of pounds, I should say, of infrastructure financing and partnering with the private sector and local government to finance a green industrial revolution and drive growth across the country. Uh, it is run by people from the banking sector, though. So, so the CEO is John Flint, who is the CEO of HSBC. It's a government-run investment bank. Uh, I guess nothing wrong with that, but I'm not quite sure whether they are doing anything different. So they say they are not crowding out private investment because they're going to areas where private investors won't go, uh, which is anywhere without a house. Uh, and yet they made 110 million profit in the year 21 to 22 with a 30% return on equity. So, I mean, it is a profit-making enterprise. I mean, that's not really going to fix things, is it? it? It's good that they're doing something like that. It's better than completely ignoring the need to give entrepreneurs finance. But yeah, it's if you focus on making a profit out of that thing, I mean, sometimes when you have the, the government can create money effectively costlessly because that's what a fiat currency is, um, then you want that creation of money to be able to improve the functioning of capitalism, not uh, not cause speculative bubbles or not end up you know, taking more money out than they put in when they start making a rate of return as high as that. So I'm, I'm glad to see them doing it. But what we really need to say is, well, what's the special thing about capitalism compared to any other social system? And without doubt, it's the impetus it gives to innovation. And that is what we should have the finance sector being the servant of rather than the master extracting the revenue rather than being you know, the, the as we call them the vampire squids of the of the world rather than the uh, the transfusion experts which is what they should be uh, well i'm just wondering whether the, the government actually has a vehicle already that they could be doing more with so the tax office i mean companies are registered with them They've you know, all got a transaction account. Uh, every business has got a transaction account with the tax office, and, and if they don't, they should. Uh, I know the, the tax office currently charges high interest rates if you're late paying your tax because they say they don't want to be seen as a bank. But, I mean, why not? If I mean, a lot of the borrowing for businesses actually – I mean, we're talking about you know businesses borrowing to, to establish growth. But actually, a lot of the borrowing, particularly over the last few years, has been companies trying to manage their cash flow. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a chunk of that is going to be meeting tax obligations. Currently, the tax office says they will charge you interest of whatever the uh, central bank base rate is plus 2.5% for late payment or three and a half percent whichever is lower so uh, but you know the minimum they're going to charge you is three and a half percent so it's quite a penalty for being late in paying your tax but people are borrowing money so businesses are borrowing money from banks to cover their cash flow to pay their tax uh, I mean that is a crazy situation like Australia was worse I've forgotten the actual name of the taxation but I got hit by this a couple of times uh, when I was doing software consulting uh, that they they had a tax which was an advanced tax. You had to pay the tax before you earned the income, or it was like yeah, a nominal tax. Yeah, yeah. You pay, you pay based on. And so, if you, and the problem with that is, if you have a really good year followed by a bad year, that bad year, uh, you might find that you're paying tax for that year based on how well you did the year before, mm, even though mm. you're doing really badly. Uh, and there's not a lot. So, but if 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 the tax office said, well, okay, tell you what, 
you know, so long as you pay your tax over a period of five years or whatever, uh, you're going to go into debt. You're going to you're going to have boom years. Um, let's just give you a very low interest rate. And by the way, if you want to borrow some money, um, so long as it falls within, you know, whatever we believe is, you know, a reasonable risk given the turnover that we've seen, because nobody knows more about your business than the tax office, uh, then, you know, why not give you uh, loans? Why not allow you to go into the red? Why not charge you very low interest based on that? I mean, the system is there. They, uh, obviously, you'd have to sack everybody in the tax office and get someone with a completely different psyche. That's, but, I mean, that it's, it, it seems like an opportunity, doesn't it? Well, that's, again, what the Chinese seem to have done. And, and it, it, a large part of saying that we, finance is not there for the sake of its own benefit. Finance is there to enable us to turn a peasant-based, third-world, backward society, and I saw it was like in 1981-82, uh, turn that into an industrial powerhouse. And hey, presto, look what they've done. I mean, the, 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 the trans, the, the, that's one of the most remarkable, probably the most remarkable in history, in fact, uh, transformation of a, of a backward economy into a hyper-advanced one in a matter of four. 40 years. And they're, even though, I mean, I've got my severe worries about climate change, as you know, uh, they're doing probably more than any other country as well to lay down alternative energy sources and to reduce energy consumption where possible uh, in, in areas like, and when you, when you put down high-speed rail, you don't have people driving cars everywhere uh, to get around. It's much faster to hop on a high-speed train to go from Shanghai to Beijing than it is to drive the bloody way there, which would be the only way to get between Boston and New York that's worth considering is driving or flying because the uh, the transit is so bloody slow. So there's enormous ways in which that industrial transformation for a country of a billion people has been remarkably successful and a large part of it comes down to how they've organised the finance and the state providing that buffer to enable banks to fund entrepreneurs and innovation right. rather than the speculation which we get in the West. So there's two issues here, isn't there? One is the risk element that's stopping uh, banks from giving loans or anybody giving loans to, to what is seen as a high-risk investment. And secondly, if it is a high-risk investment, it's the interest rate that's going to be charged on that, which actually in itself could destroy the business model, which stops uh, startups happening in the first place. So the way around that is, yes, there needs to be more state involvement to de-risk and as part of that de-risking, bringing that interest rate down. Yeah, and also enabling, I mean, I'm quite in favor of banks taking an equity position. The one thing I've seen against that, which I have to mention, this actually came from an earlier podcast of ours, is somebody who does have a few bank representatives on their board saying, look, they're a pain in the butt. They have no bloody idea about the business. They get in the way. Um, so you don't want that equity position, meaning a control position for a financial sector. And I'll quote another person who felt the same way about that, little bloke by the name of Karl Marx, who wrote this wonderful set of lines. Uh, he said, talk about centralization. The uh, the big uh, financiers and the parasites hanging off them periodically get the capacity to take over real production. And this gang knows nothing, nothing about it and should have nothing to do with it. He called them the roving cavaliers of credit, which is what the title of one of my most successful blog posts. So yeah, you don't want the banks running the show, but you do want them taking an equity position rather than a debt position because that's more they're more likely to take out large loans, they're more likely to get entrepreneurial finance occurring. And you can you have to find a way of preventing that, causing them going bankrupt uh, by the inevitable failure of about Four out of five entrepreneurs, which which means there has to be a reliance on the government in in some way. Yeah, uh, yeah. and and regionalizing it so that they are closer. That was the other thing we've covered today. But just on this on this thing about the tax office, I mean, do you think that's a good idea? The reason I mention it is because 
some facts. The overall value of UK SME bank loans was 65.1 billion in 2022. That was up almost 13% from the year before. The median average value of SME loans was £14,000 in 2022, which was a 40% rise in 2021. And more than two-thirds of SMEs claim their reason for requiring external finance was cash flow related. Uh. So for businesses to collapse because of cash flow, and lots of businesses do in January because they might have had a lean Christmas and then the tax office calls for tax at the end of January. Perfect timing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, you know, that, so that's when business, and miraculously, that's when businesses fail, January and February. Uh, you know, and the tax office has a part to play with that. So actually turning around the tax office to actually be a company that, uh, a, a division of the government that actually helps businesses stay alive rather than killing them, that would be quite a good turn of events as well. And this would also come out of understanding modern monetary theory, which is actually just a description of the accounting of money, fiat money creation. That's what it fundamentally is. Uh, governments don't finance themselves by taxation, but the mentality we have that taxation is needed to finance the activities of government is what leads to that sort of predatory taxation policies by governments around the world. And what they realized, they were simply taking money out of circulation uh, because if the government simply spent you know, 30% of GDP and didn't tax 28% of it back again, it was 25%, you'd have an incredible runaway level of money supply. And of course, that would generate inflation ultimately. Uh, it's, it's just a, a way of taking that money out of circulation. You don't want to take it out of circulation if people coming up with new ideas. Better to take it of those with old ideas, you know, uh, and and that and the timing has to be thought of. So you have to be aware of all these issues of how private corporations are formed and uh, and the and the fragility of an entrepreneurial business. The tax office right now is doing precisely the wrong thing because even though they're full of accountants, just like most of the bloody world, they don't understand how money is created. No, and hence that's why they say, well, we don't want to behave like a bank, and that's why they charge base rate plus two and a half percent for late payments. Um, I know I sound bitter. Yeah. It's almost as though I've had to pay you that, are, Steve. It just happened. <laughs> I, 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 I was just wondering. There may have been a coincidence here. I did think that. Yeah. Not this year, but it has, <laughs> it has in the past. And certainly I have been caught out by that, you know, good year followed by bad year, bad year having to pay the same tax in advance uh, and being, you know, and, and it, yeah, it, it absolutely cuts our family spending. Therefore, it's not good for the economy. Uh, and it's, it's all just to do with cash flow, nothing to do with, you know, the overall long-term performance of the business. So, um, yeah, as you say, this, the slump that occurs in January, and then it's when you've got to pay your tax. It's a double whammy. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> yeah, never a good time. And here we are. Look, my goodness, it's the end of January. Uh, good to talk, Steve. Uh, we'll catch you again next time. Okay, mate. Bye. The Debunking Economics Podcast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.